You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. So we are continuing our series in 1 Timothy. So go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And we're going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'd like to ask you a question. Who here has ever been given a gift that you deemed it so precious you would do anything to keep it safe? Right? Maybe it's something that you just got for Christmas. Maybe it is something of sentimental value that has been passed down from generation to generation to you. Maybe a piece of jewelry from your great-grandmother or a family photo album that has memories attached to it. Whatever it may be, you can always tell the value that somebody places on something by the links that they will go to protect it. Some of you might have these precious belongings in a safe or maybe a safety deposit box at a bank, or maybe it's that secret hiding spot that nobody knows about, you know, underneath the third oak tree at the end of the fence post, buried underneath a rock that looks like Texas. I I don't know. But we go to great lengths to protect things that we deem important. And this week as I was preparing, I was trying to think, what in my own life have I been given that I deem so precious that I would go to any length to protect it? And I told my wife this. I said, I'm really struggling with this. I don't know what I've been given um, that I would go to any length to protect. To which she replied, gee, thanks, and looked down at her belly and said, I guess it's just you and me, buddy. You know, you ever say something as the words leave your mouth, you realize that's the wrong thing to say? Yeah, well, that was a learning experience. But no, as I was thinking through these things this week, I was reminded of a story that I'd heard often throughout my childhood about my mother. And I told my mom I was going to use her as my sermon intro this week, and she, she does not like to be talked about. So, mom, forgive me. But when she was pregnant with me, she endured a lot of health problems, so much so that the doctors weren't even sure that I was going to make it. And there was a lot of doubt as to what kind of life I would have once I was born. But the bottom line was it forced my mother to grow closer to the Lord. She began to pray earnestly, day in and day out, for a healthy pregnancy, for a safe baby to be delivered and grow up healthy. And it was through these nine months of trial that she just really strengthened her relationship with God. She recognized he's the only one that could help her. The doctors weren't giving her any answers. She was, in many ways, on her own in that regard. And so you factor in nine months of uncertainty and and health issues, And then you cap it all off with the fact that I was born the day before Hugo made landfall here. And she had her hands full, right, to say the least. And she would often share stories of what that was like. You know, everybody in the hospital was brought out into the hallways by the doctors and nurses and staff. And she said, I was just hanging on to you for dear life. I was scared to death that the wind would blow you out of my arms. And while that uncertain pregnancy brought my mom closer to the Lord through prayer, it didn't end when I was born. You know, ultimately I was born, spoiler alert, I'm here. Um, But those health issues that were were facing her kind of just went away, you know? And so she saw God answer that prayer, but she didn't stop praying for 
her children, who were ultimately her most precious gift. And as I think back to my childhood, it is full of memories of waking up and seeing my mother sitting at the kitchen table long before anyone else is awake in the household, praying to God for her children and spending time in the Word. And while different seasons brought about different prayer requests, ultimately, she was always praying about the salvation of her children, my sister and myself. And the bottom line is that she had a high view of prayer. She understood what prayer is and why God gives us prayer. But once we get down to it, so many of us don't share that same high view of prayer, right? How many of us give up praying for something when God hasn't answered that prayer after a week, right? Or after a few days? How many of us view prayer as something to do after we've done everything else? Once I've tried everything in my own power to, to fix this problem, if that don't solve the problem, then I'll go to God and pray about it, right? We tend to do that. And that's ultimately because we don't have a high view of what prayer is. And so the bottom line for our passage today, if you're taking notes, go ahead and jot this down, is that prayer is the main weapon to be used in defense of the gospel. So go ahead and take your Bibles and join me. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 together. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Join me as we pray. Father, come before you again and just give thanks for the opportunity that we can gather freely and openly here together as your body, um, that we can spend a few moments just studying your word that you have graciously given us. And Father, I just ask that you would remove any obstacles that may be present in our hearts and in our minds to your word, that your spirit would just move freely about this room and stir in the hearts of your people, that we would leave out of here more deeply in love with you than we've ever been before, and that we would seek to tell others about how you've transformed our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here in these first few verses, we see that Paul is going to great lengths to tell Timothy the importance of prayer. And we see that with the very first words that he says. He says, first of all, right? He's saying, Timothy, if you get nothing else out of what I'm writing you, you better understand this. And so, if you Think back to the last two sermons that have been preached. We see that there's some issues going on in the church at Ephesus, right? There's been these false teachers that have risen up and been teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God. And that's what Pastor Brian preached on the first uh, Sunday and showing how the things that were being taught were contrary to the law that God has given us, right? So that was the first week. And then secondly, we saw in Pastor Walter's sermon last week, 
he specifically singles out these false teachers. Think of Hymenaeus and Alexander. He's saying, Timothy, this is how you deal with them. But the bottom line is that there's always going to be obstacles to the gospel, right? There's always going to be those that are hostile to the gospel. But what I want to do is before we move into all of our four points for today, and it's funny, Sierra helped type up my sermon uh, this week, and she's looking over and she's like, four points. Are we not going to get out until three o'clock? I said, no, we're going to briefly look at the first two and then spend the bulk of our time at points three and four. And that's because the first point is this. We need to know what prayer is, right? It is important to have a proper understanding of what prayer is in order to have a high view of prayer, right? So Paul gives us the answer to this elsewhere in the New Testament. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. And so what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians is prayer is a spiritual act, and we need to recognize that we, church, are in the midst of a spiritual war. But God gives us prayer to wage war against the enemy. In fact, he says it's so powerful through God that it can demolish strongholds. That's what prayer can do. He also states Romans chapter 8, verse 26, that is a spiritual act. That there's oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen this in your own life, that when you pray, you don't even really know what to say. But the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf and prays for us when we don't even know what to say. And then also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. But the bottom line is prayer is a weapon, and that weapon can demolish strongholds. And to give you an example of this, as most of you know, uh, my wife and I are expecting our firstborn. Um, as a matter of fact, tomorrow marks eight weeks until our due date. So like, we're getting close. And we're having a little boy, and one of the things I am most excited about is what I get to teach him. As he grows older, I'll be able to teach him things, teach him how to grow up and be a man. And one of those things that is hallmarked to being a man is learning how to fish. Right? I shared with you uh, some memories from my childhood with my mother. Well, with my father, my childhood centered around fishing. Most of my memories I have with my father are centered around fishing. In fact, I don't even remember how old I was when I learned how to fish. That's how young I was. And so when we take him home from the hospital in a few weeks and around the age of, I don't know, six weeks or however old you need to be to learn how to fish, I'm going to take him out behind our house. As you can tell, I don't know a lot about babies, and it's coming quite terrifying the closer we get to it. It's like, man, there's a lot I don't know about this. I'll figure it out. Anyway, so there's going to come a point in his life when I would like to teach him how to fish. And thankfully, we have a pond in our neighborhood that our house backs up to. And so one day, I'm just going to set him out there and say, go fish. Well, no, obviously, I wouldn't do that because he needs to know what to do, knowing how to fish before we do that, right? 
That's what Paul's doing here in this passage to Timothy. Paul doesn't just say, pray, Timothy. He then breaks it down. Here's how to pray. Here's who to pray for, right? And that's what God does for us believers, right? He doesn't just say, go and figure it out, right? You think about the Great Commission. Christ tells his disciples, he says, go therefore and what? Make disciples, right, of all nations. Doesn't stop there. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? So that's how you make disciples. You teach them all that he has commanded you. And then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? It's here's what to do and here's how to do it. Which leads us to our second point. We need to know what to pray. So let's, let's dive in now. All right? Looking at verse 1. It says, first of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Right? So Paul doesn't say, Timothy, pray. And not only pray, pray for everybody, and then just moves on to the next topic. No, he then breaks it down. He says, there are four types of prayers that you can be praying for everyone. He says, petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And so let's take a second to look at what each of these are, Okay? So the first one, petitions, it just means to ask for something. It is a request. So you are going before God and asking him for something, right? So that's what a petition is. Then prayers. I, I didn't know this. Prayers are oratory worship. So that is you verbally worshiping God in your prayers. Intercessions simply means to urge on behalf of others. So somebody shares with you something that they're going through, you pray on their behalf to God. That's what an intercession is. And then lastly, thanksgivings. And that one, it's in the name. It means giving thanks to God for what he has done. So Paul's telling Timothy, he said, here's four ways that you can pray to God. You can make your requests known to him. You can praise and worship him. You can ask him to act on behalf of others, and then you can give him thanks for what he has already done. So the first three are asking God to act. The last one is in response to God acting. So to continue with my illustration from earlier about fishing, right, with my son, you know, I'm not going to send him out to the pond and just say, go catch a fish, but I'm going to teach him how to fish. So first, here's how you set your rod up. Right? You string your line this way through the eyelids and, and get enough on there so that you can do the second step, which is tie the hook at the end. Right? Here's how you do that. And then thirdly, how to put your bait on the hook. Right? You can't catch a fish without bait. So put your cricket on there, your worm, whatever it is you're using. And then lastly, here's how you cast the rod so that you can put your bait in the water and hope that a fish will get it. That's the same thing Paul is doing here with Timothy. He's saying, here's how you do what I am telling you to do. So then that must lead us to ask some questions of ourselves. Are you making your requests known to God when you pray? Are you sharing those requests with others so that they can be praying on your behalf? Are you giving God the worship 
that he deserves when you pray? Or is it just simply, hey, God, here's my demands. I'll check back with you next week and see how it's going. Are you asking God to act on behalf of others? Those that may be sick, those that may be lost, those that are believers, but maybe they've since drifted away and praying for them to be restored to the family. And are you taking time in your prayer life to just reflect on all that God has done for you already and give thanks for that? And while Paul is going to such lengths to get Timothy to understand what he should be praying, the main point is not what to pray, but rather that we should be praying all types of prayers for all types of people, okay? So now we're getting into what Paul is really saying here in this passages, which leads us to our third point. We're going to spend more time in these last two points, so just bear with me. And our third point is this. We need to know who to pray for. So let's look at verse 2. He says, after he says everyone, I want you guys to underline or circle that word everyone in your Bibles, right? At the end of verse 1. But in verse 2, he then singles out a specific group of people. He says, for kings and for all those who are in authority. Now, this is interesting. Paul says, everyone, but then shifts to kings and all those who are in authority. And the reason is because of where this passage is situated, we see that first Paul addresses the biggest threat to the gospel within the church, false teachers. Now, Paul is telling Timothy who the biggest threat to the gospel is outside of the church. Kings and all those who are in authority. And you guys hear this all the time, but context is key. All right, So let's take a moment here and just think about the context in which Paul is writing this letter. You guys know who the emperor of Rome is at this time? A man by the name of Nero. And for those that you may, may not know, Nero was the first Roman emperor to institute state-sponsored persecution of the church. So Paul's writing this letter in roughly 62, 63, 64 AD, somewhere right around in that time frame. And he's saying, you need to pray for all kings, right? That includes Nero, who is going to persecute the church, who in just a few short years will be the one responsible for the death of Paul, who is writing this letter. Paul says, pray for that man. And not only that, you think about the context to which he is writing. Timothy's in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus at one point boasted of being the second largest city in the Roman Empire, second only to Rome. And if you think back to Paul's missionary journeys, Acts 19, when he is on his third missionary journey, he stops in Ephesus. And this city also boasted of containing one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And that was the temple of the goddess Diana. So this is a city that is full of idolatry, right? And in Acts 19, we see that one of those makers of these idols gets so mad at Paul in his preaching of the gospel that he incites a riot. And the whole city turns against him. That's who... He's writing this letter to, to Timothy to say, pray for those people, right? These are not people in the church. These are not his friends. These are people that are opposed to the gospel. He's saying, pray for those people. 
That is what is shocking in this passage. That is what sets Christianity apart from every other faith in the world. What does Christ say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That is a mind-blowing statement. But that's what we are called to do. And so if Paul's writing this letter in first century, and he's, com- he's got an emperor who wants Christians dead, tortured, and in prison. He's writing it to a city that is hostile to the gospel. You say, well, that, that's, that's tough. But church, the same is true of us today, okay? Our greatest threat to the gospel is the same as it was in Paul's day. False teachers in the church and those that are in authority outside of the church. And to give you an illustration, I recently finished reading a book it's titled, When a Nation Forgets God. And it is seven lessons we must learn from Nazi Germany. Written by a man named Erwin Lutzer. And if you haven't read it, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's an easy read. And once I picked it up, I couldn't put it down. But the point Lutzer is making in his book is that he uses Nazi Germany as the example. But when any nation drifts further and further away from God, then the government in that nation becomes more and more secular, more and more authoritarian, and more and more hostile to the gospel through the laws they enact. And so he gives seven examples of this. And you might be sitting there thinking, that's Nazi Germany. That could never happen here in America. And that's what his whole book is, is showing how, in fact, it does happen here in America. But just to give you guys a few examples... Think back to the Old Testament. That's the entire history of the nation of Israel, of putting a ruler in charge that is far from God and then dragging the whole nation further and further away from God, right? That's the Old Testament in the history of Israel. And here in America, we see the same thing. We see attacks on things that God values very highly, the value of human life, the sanctity of marriage, family, manhood, all of these things we see in our own culture that are being attacked. And that's because these are things instituted by God, deemed to be good. But here's what I want you to hear. This is not meant to be a political statement. Politics have no place in the pulpit. But rather, this is to show you what Paul is trying to get Timothy to understand in this passage. We must be praying for our leaders. Doesn't matter if you like them, doesn't matter if you voted for them, doesn't matter if you agree with where they stand on everything. We must be praying. Why? Because they represent the greatest threat to the gospel. We must pray for them. So the application here means that we're not on social media bashing them, saying president so-and-so is this or candidate so-and-so is this doesn't mean we're out there stirring up strife. doesn't mean we're at the office gossiping with our coworker about the latest scandal out of the mayor's office. doesn't mean we're out there rioting and protesting over the latest decision of the Supreme Court. It means we go to our knees and pray for these people. It doesn't mean that we're not upset over what's happening. It means that we do this by praying. You want to make a difference in this world? You pray. That's how you make a difference in this world. So we pray 
that our church would remain steadfast to the gospel, that we would rise up as the beacon of hope that the lost and dying world around us so desperately needs. We pray that our rulers would make decisions that are pleasing to God and that reflect his will. And an easy way to do that is through a devotional that I just started at the first of the year. It's all about bringing worship back into your quiet time, right? It's not just sitting there, reading your passage of Scripture, and then praying, but really getting back to the heart of what that quiet time is intended to be. And the format that they give in that is personal, church, and world. And so what I mean by that is you pray for your personal request, you know, those that are in your personal sphere, pray for them, right? Pray for those things. Well, then you pray for your church. So you pray for those ministry leaders, your pastors. Pray for those in leadership positions in the church. And that also means the global church, right? You think back to a few weeks when when Nate preached. Afterwards, he gave out these bracelets to remember those brothers and sisters that are in jail and being persecuted around the world for their faith in the gospel. Pray for the church. And then praying for the world. So within the world, we have our government leaders and authorities. We have those of other nations. But more importantly, pray that the global church would rise up with the gospel and share it with a lost and dying world. That this world would come to know and love Jesus Christ. This is what we are to be praying for. And so now that we've looked at who, what, when, where, now we get to why. This is our fourth and final point here. Know why we pray. And so now we finally get to the last half of chapter 2, or excuse me, verse 2, and look at the remainder of the passage. Why do we do this? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That is why we pray for these things. God calls us to lead a tranquil and quiet life. And not just that, but in all godliness. This is the main point of this passage. This is what we are called to do. And the reason comes from verses 3 and 4. Look with me. It says, this is good. And it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So why do we pray this? Because we recognize that God is the only one that can change the hearts of man. He is the only one in control. Not us, not the government, not any other authority. God is in control. And so through praying for these people, we recognize that he is the only one that can intervene and change things in this world. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at who's writing the letter. Paul, persecutor of the church, murderer, blasphemer. God changed his heart. Look at who's preaching to you today. God changed my heart. Every one of you in here that have professed faith in Christ, he changed your heart. So God can change our hearts. Don't you think he can change kings and rulers' hearts as well? Absolutely. And think back to my 
introduction when I was telling you about my mother, how she was diligent in prayer for me and my sister's salvation. Every morning she was up at 4.30, long before everybody else, seated at that kitchen table, praying to God, God, please reveal yourself to my children in such a way that they profess faith in Christ and that they live for you. That prayer took 26 years to be answered in her life. 26 years she prayed for my salvation. 26 years. And there's a very real chance that if she's not praying for 26 years, I'm not here standing before you preaching the word of God today. That's what prayer can do. That's what God can do. And so as we wrap up our time together, it is important that we have been given this beautiful, most precious gift in the gospel. That's what God has given us. And he's also given us a way in which we can defend it at all costs, and that's through prayer. But more than that, it is so that others may be saved. Verse 4, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? That's what God ultimately wants. He wants people to know him. And that's what Paul wants. And that's what we, church, should want too. And in order to do that, we've got to remind ourselves of that sweet gospel truth every single day. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Guys, I want you to underline that word all there, or circle it, and we'll come back to that in just a few moments. But we have to remind ourselves of the gospel daily. And I love what Paul's saying here in verses 5 and 6. He says there's one God and one mediator. Think about the term that Paul's using here in mediator. What does a mediator do? They reconcile two parties, right? You have the party that is offended, and then you have the party that has done the offending. And Paul clearly states that the offended party is God. Well, how have we offended God? Through our sin and rebellion. We've offended God. But God has given us a mediator to reconcile us to him through a ransom in verse 6. And that ransom was his blood that he poured out on the cross for us. That is how he reconciled us to God. That is how he made peace between humanity and God. And we see right here in verse 6, who did he do this for? All who would believe and repent and say, yes, Christ is my Savior. Christ did die for me. He was buried for me. He did rise again for me. And so if Paul says prayer is for everyone, then that means the gospel is for everyone. Doesn't matter their social status. Doesn't matter their title doesn't mean their authority or anything else. The gospel is for them, and they can be saved. So what do we do with that? Paul gives us the answer in verse 7. First thing we need to do is pray with certainty. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, for this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth. And because Paul is telling the truth here in verse 7, 
we can pray to God with certainty. We know that his word is true. It also means we pray with authority. Paul has commissioned a herald. What does a herald do? They speak on behalf of a king. You and I are ambassadors for King Jesus. We speak on his behalf. That means we're not communicating our own message. We're communicating his message. And because we are a herald, we pray with authority. And lastly, pray with faith. Paul says, I'm a teacher to the Gentiles in faith. Faith is the foundation of our prayers. When we pray, we expect God to act because we have faith, because he has acted through Christ Jesus at the cross, because he will act when he returns, and because he is currently acting as he reigns on the throne. We pray with faith. So as we conclude our time together, for all the believers in the room and online, I want to encourage you this week. I want to challenge you in your prayer life. I want you to step outside of your comfort zone and pray for people that you don't normally pray for. Maybe it's somebody that is a believer. Maybe it's somebody that's outside of the body of faith altogether. But I want to encourage you to pray for those that you don't normally pray for. I want to encourage you to pray for your leaders and your rulers and your people in authority. Maybe it's your boss at work that's not a believer. Maybe it's somebody on the HOA that's complaining about how your grass looks. I don't know. Pray for them. I want to encourage you to pray for them. And for those of you who are maybe exploring Christianity or what it means to be a follower of Christ, the passage clearly says that it is possible to lead a tranquil and quiet life. Maybe you're searching for peace. The Bible says you can have it, but only through faith in Christ. You can have peace. You can lead a tranquil life. So as we wrap up, I'm going to be right down here. If you got any questions about what we've talked about today or today's message, or you want to explore more of what it means to be a follower of Christ, I'd love to talk to you. I don't have much of a voice, but I'll use what little bit I got left to talk to you about Jesus. I can guarantee you that. So I want to invite you to go to the Lord in prayer with me, and then we'll sing one last song and end our time here together. Father, I'd like to just again say thanks for the opportunity to preach your word and just to uh, share the goodness of it with your people that you have revealed to me this week. And uh, just thank you for giving me the strength to get up here and preach after fighting through sickness all week. And uh, thank you for all your people that you have brought here today. And um, I just ask that we would be diligent in our prayer life this week, Father, that we would pray for those that we don't normally pray for, that we would step out of our comfort zone and, and just be daring in our prayer life, that we would pray for those in our personal circle, pray for those in our church, and pray for those in the world that are far from you, Jesus, that they would come to know you and that we would be diligent in praying about that because we know that prayer is a mighty weapon to be used that you've given it to us, Jesus, and we just give thanks for that. So we pray now all these things in your name. Amen.